questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to the program today. My guest is Rabbi Evan Moffick, who believes that it doesn't matter what your religion is, where you're from, what side of the political debate that you stand on, or what ethnicity you are. He says that we all have one thing in common. We all want to live a happier and more meaningful life. And he says that I believe this is true with every cell in my body, and Evan has made it his life's work to help men and women on the journey to find happiness and contentment in their life and in the lives of those uh, that they love and in his community. Rabbi Moffick joined Congregation Solel outside of Chicago in July of 2009 at the age of 31, and he did that after serving for three years at Chicago Sinai Congregation. He is a graduate from the class of 2000 of Stanford University, and he was ordained by Hebrew Union College in 2006. Evan is regularly featured as part of the religion panel on Fox and Friends and on CNN, and his articles have appeared in the Huffington Post. Recently, the Chicago Tribune described Rabbi Moffick as a brilliant antidote to all that divides us. He constructs bridges where others drive wedges, and the rabbi we'd love to call our own, humble, wise, and beyond good words. You will hear in this congregation that Evan is a thoughtful and delightful man who is uh, enthusiastically optimistic. He's the author of three best-selling books and a soon-to-be-released book. He wrote, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, What Every Christian Needs to Know About Passover, and the happiness prayer, which we discuss today. In January of 2019, he will be releasing First the Jews, Combating the World's Longest-Running Hate Campaign, which is a book about anti-Semitism. And although this interview is primarily about the happiness prayer, uh, we delve into his new book, First the Jews, and anti-Semitism for about 10 minutes in this interview. So let's jump into the conversation. I'm sure that you will enjoy listening to Rabbi Moffick as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Rabbi Evan Moffick, thank you for finally we get to sit together. Uh, thanks for taking time with me. Thank you. It's, it's a joy and an honor to be here. We have a mutual friend, uh, Ian, who I was introduced to your work and your writing through him, and today I'm excited to be able to talk with you about your book, The Happiness Prayer, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for the Best Way to Live Today. Um, but first of all, just talk a little bit about who you are and, and what you do there in Illinois. Well, I am a rabbi, a synagogue in, in suburban Illinois uh, and uh, outside of Chicago. And I've been here at my current congregation. This is my 10th year. It's about a 500-family congregation, so it's, uh, it's a lot of work it's, uh, and a lot of teaching. I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of pastoral care. I do a lot of life cycle events, weddings, funerals, baby namings. Uh, and I'm a husband and a father of two, two young girls, 9 and 11. And uh, I'm also a writer. And it's it's been it all kind of comes together, that the writing draws from my experience as a rabbi, 
uh, and the writing enriches my approach as a rabbi. And it's, uh, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world to get to do what I love. Well, and your books are so well written and so engaging, which is why I was able to jump into the happiness prayer, not just once, but twice. I know if I don't bring this up now, uh, that we'll either run out of time or I'll forget about it. But you have a new book coming out, I believe, in January 2019. Can you talk to me about that? Because it's a heavy topic. Very heavy topic, almost uh, different than the happiness prayer. It's uh, called First the Jews, and it's on the resurgence of anti-Semitism. And it, it really is in some ways similar to the happiness prayer in that it reflects my journey as a rabbi. When I became a rabbi, when I was ordained, that was in 2006, but I applied in about 2000, so right before 9-11. And when I applied to rabbinical school, the world was great. I mean, there were still problems, but it was, it was not uh, – Israel was on the path to peace, it seemed, with the Palestinians. Uh, Jews were fully accepted in the United States. Joe Lieberman, an Orthodox Jew, was the vice presidential nominee, and it seemed like we were living in a, in a golden age. And that changed dramatically over the last uh, 18 years. And one of my challenges as a rabbi was seeing that happen, where college campuses kind of became a battleground uh, over, over issues around Israel and Palestine and uh, communities. There was a lot more tension in the Jewish community and this kind of ancient hatred that we thought was gone uh, in a sense, revived itself like a virus. You think it's eliminated and it comes back to life again. And that to me has been a major challenge of my role as a rabbi and an advocate and a spokesperson for the Jewish community. And so I wanted to understand how that happened. And, and the result was, was this book. And it really, it all started with, I was speaking at lots of different churches and synagogues and people started asking me about anti-Semitism, and uh, I didn't really know enough to really answer their questions. So I went back, did the research, uh, took my background as uh, someone who studied history uh, in college and, and, and someone who plays a, an uh, advocacy role in the present and kind of brought it together to, to help answer that question. Why now? What's going on? And what can we do about it? So what was your conclusion about uh, why now? Well, I think there are sort of um, two phenomena. There is the rise of, of the alt-right which we saw a lot during the election. And this is sort of, this is the, 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 the classical anti-Semitism of the um, sort of ultra-nationalist uh, people started in 19th century Europe, came to America and the Ku Klux Klan and, and, and other groups in the, in the 20th century. Uh, and and that, that is sort of familiar anti-Semitism. That's the kind of anti-Semitism that Jews have been fighting for centuries. Uh, and, and, and it kind of got a new face in the last 10 years online. Uh, and and it, by the way, it's not a Republican or a Democratic phenomenon. The most – the person who was the most harassed online in 2015 was Ben Shapiro, who was a Jewish, uh, very conservative uh, writer and podcaster. So – uh, this is not I'm not I'm not bringing politics into it. This is just a, a phenomenon of a certain group uh, on, on, the, on the far right of the political spectrum that targets Jews. So that's one phenomenon. But the other and I think that the, the more the, the, the newer aspect of what I'm doing is uh, talking about the far left anti-Semitism 
by people on college campuses who believe that Israel, who describe Israel as an apartheid state, and then say anyone who is associated with Israel. So if you're Jewish, you may not have ever even been to Israel. You may not know what's going on in Israel, but simply the fact that you're Jewish, you're complicit in oppression and human rights violations. And that's that's a distortion of of what it. Of, I mean, people who think that who and who think that they're protecting human rights are actually undermining human rights. So uh, that was a, a big part of the book is examining how this happened on college campuses. And the reason there are a lot of reasons. There's um, the rise of, of of radical Islam. There is uh, uh, the rise of a conservative government in Israel, which has created uh, enemies there. There all these different phenomena uh, really kind of created this alternative uh, or it's not really alternative, but a, a far radical left. And then the other part of the book that that I think is is unique and somewhat controversial is when we think about anti-Semitism, it typically was a Christian phenomenon. Started, you know, I mean, not not true Christianity, not 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 the kind of Christians that that I know and cherish and love, but really a, a kind of uh, this this part of the church that really saw um, Christianity as superseding Judaism. But that diminished amazingly. And after the Holocaust, the reconciliation between Jews and Christians was nothing sort of miraculous. But while Jewish-Christian relations have never been better, Jewish-Muslim relations have never been worse. So I look at that phenomenon. Why? How did that happen? Of course, a lot of it has to do with the Middle East, but a lot of it also has to do with uh, the uh, with imperialism and the relationship between Israel and the United States. So I look at that phenomenon. Um, so it's it's somewhat of a hopeful book in that I do think that the ability to coexist, America is a remarkable place. Despite all of our tension, people do get along, but a lot of the conflicts we see around the world find their expression in America. So I, I try to end on a hopeful note that, yes, we can fight anti-Semitism, but we can't fight it alone. We have to have partnerships between Jews and Christians, Jews and Muslims, and um, and that's kind of how I guide people in the final chapters of the book. Well, it sounds complex and weighty, but it does sound very hopeful. And to bring it back around, because you talked about that there was a connection, when we understand these 10 elements or rabbinic commandments, as I understand them to be, of the happiness prayer, which is your book I want to discuss, those really invite us uh, to be magnanimous to ourselves, uh, toward God and from God, and also with one another. So it spreads out on that social and interpersonal and global level, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, that's part of who I am as a rabbi and part of the reason that I have been able to connect with you, with uh, Ian and other pastors who, you know, and, and, and teachers whom I cherish is, I try to write in a way that's universal, that my I believe that Judaism is a source of wisdom for humanity as a whole. My rabbinate is not just for Jews, although I serve a congregation, I serve the Jewish community. But I think the greatest spiritual teachings are teachings that apply to all people. They're ways we can really bring wisdom and perspective into our lives. Not that we don't have our own particular rituals and beliefs. Of course we do. But we also have core ideas that, are, that, that, that improve everybody's life. And so that's what I've been focused on as a rabbi. And so when you wrote The Happiness Prayer, you were going through a journey yourself that this book emerged from. You were struggling with your own faith and your vocation and your very calling to be a rabbi. Can you talk a little about that? 
Oh, yeah. I, I think it was a time when I wasn't sure I was I was qualified or able to really be a source of strength and and perspective and faith for people because I was doubting myself. I was wondering, could I really help people through difficult moments if I hadn't experienced those myself? Could I really serve as a representative of God and of the Jewish people in a time when I was doubting my own sense of commitment? Um, who was I? I kind of was saying, who was I at 30 years old to be counseling people in their 60s and 70s and, and telling them how to get through difficult moments if I had never gone through them myself? And so I really felt, I felt challenged. Uh, and I wanted, I've always been someone who wants to do a good job. I want to succeed. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm <laughs> uh, and, and then I felt like, but I'm, am I really succeeding? Am I doing, am I doing this well? And that's where that the happiness prayer and what I discovered in positive psychology and, and kind of marrying the two, I began to look at Judaism and faith in a different way. And it really awoken me, uh, awakened me. And I, I found deep strength in that prayer. Uh, I kind of knew what prayer was all about for the first time. I'd always, I'd always participated in prayer, but I, I think when I, when I went through those difficult times, it really made it real. It really made it powerful. And I'm grateful for that experience now. Yeah. And so one of the things I love about the happiness prayer book is that you take this ancient text and you are obviously a, a person that reads widely and deeply. So you take uh, modern psychology, especially the positive psychology movement that Martin Seligman launched. Uh, you take some business principles. Mike Hyatt is quoted in the book, and I'm a big fan of his. But oh. you, you, you blend together so many different elements to really um, kind of say, here's a way of living that's not about being legalistic or... Uh, dogmatic, but here's this pathway that will result in joy. Yeah. I'm always looking for wisdom. I think that is, and it doesn't matter where, where it comes from. There's another teaching, and this is from a, a book in Judaism. It's actually part of the Talmud called Pirkei Avot, which means sayings of the fathers, sayings of the ancestors. And it's 2,000 years old, and I've been wanting to write a book on Pirkei Avot called The Greatest Self-Help Book Ever Written because it's an amazing book, and it's underappreciated. And there's a teaching in Pirkei Avot that says, who is wise? And the answer, one who learns from all people. And so I'm always trying to learn from everybody. It could be a business leader that's quoted in Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, and it could be you know, the Dalai Lama, and it could be uh, Rabbi Akiba from 2,000 years ago. There's so much wisdom if we look and if we try to appreciate and are open to different experiences. And that's always been a part of, 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 of how I look at the world. Um, and, and I think the ancient rabbis who wrote the happiness prayer, I think they did as well. I think they were – there's another famous teaching in the Talmud where the, uh, a student finds his rabbi, his, his sort of teacher in the Roman baths. And he says, Rabbi, you know, we're opposed to the Romans. What are you doing in the Roman baths? He said, well, the Romans know a lot about hygiene. And they know about skating. <laughs> so we should learn from them. And so it was a truly that that's, that's a, 
you know, we, we, we have our own practices, but we can also learn from the surrounding culture. And I think that's a part of, of Judaism and the way I, I practice and live it. Wow. That, that goes right back to your forthcoming book about anti-Semitism, that if, if we can't open ourselves to the experience and perspective of another and that they actually have something to teach us, uh, then hatred or some kind of uh, separateness or, or dualism will, will set in. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the great dangers of the world is that when we believe we have absolute truth and we're willing to enforce that truth on others through force, that creates there's, – there's nothing wrong with having disagreements. and There's actually nothing wrong with really having a sense of absolute truth. But if you try to enforce your view on the, of the world on somebody else – and dehumanize anyone who disagrees with you, that creates tension. And that's that 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 happens. It's a temptation within every religion. Um, but part of our challenge as human beings and as specifically as religious leaders is to moderate that. Yeah, one might say that uh, eating at the tree of knowledge is all about I've got the right knowledge, I've got the right opinion, and therefore you're wrong and I have to oppose you. Yeah. That's beautiful, and I think that's right. I mean, that's why pride is such a sin in Christianity, and and you know Moses in the Torah is described as the most humble man on earth. So to be true people of faith, we need humility. You know, if if we knew everything about God, then then why would we need faith? We'd know everything. So we have to have a sense of humility if we truly want to be people of faith. Uh, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the origin of the happiness prayer, because it's not just a book idea that you got and invented this um, to write a prayer, but it's an ancient text from the rabbis, uh, and it's the Elu Devarim. Am I saying that correct or near correct? That pronunciation was perfect. Well, then so, let, me, yeah. let me say it again, but a drum roll this time. Elu, <laughs> Elu Devarim. Yes. Okay. Uh, it literally means Elu means these are, and then Devarim Divarim is a very flexible Hebrew word. So Hebrew, it, ha, biblical Hebrew only has about one quarter of the number of words that modern English does. So words had different meanings depending on the context. Divarim means things. It also means words, and it means teachings. So in a sense, Elu Divarim means these are the teachings. And it's a prayer, or it's not even really a prayer. It's a text taken from the Talmud, that is turned into a prayer. But the Talmud is a compilation of rabbinic wisdom and laws that was originally oral. It was the rabbis getting together and discussing the meaning of the Torah. And then later on, somebody wrote down what they, the, the, what they discussed and what they said. And so Elu Devarim is a section from the Talmud. And at some point maybe 1,500 years ago, we don't know the exact time frame, they said, well, these teachings are so important that we are going to make them part of our daily prayer service. And so this saying, this text, these are the, these are the things, these are the teachings, became part of our daily prayer. And so that's where it came from. And essentially, one day, I was in, uh, I was in a worship service. It was, we were praying. And it was a bat mitzvah, so that's a coming of age ceremony for boy for girls. Girls is a bat mitzvah, boys is a bar mitzvah. And this was during that period when I was struggling. And 
this young woman started chanting. She was singing the Eludivarim prayer. And I was thinking, wait a minute. I'm looking for happiness. I'm looking for meaning. I'm struggling. And I'm listening to this prayer, and it just struck me as to how much wisdom was contained in it. And I said, you know, I've said this prayer hundreds and hundreds of times, thousands maybe by then, and I had never realized what it was saying. And that was kind of the beginning of this journey. Uh, and I, I started saying, well, well, let me look at either. There were 10 of them. So there were 10 principles. One of the, one of the uh, titles we played around with for the book was The Other Ten Commandments, which I liked. Um, the publisher didn't want the word commandments in the title for whatever reason. And so the, I began to look at each of these 10 teachings and, and, and asking, well, what deeper truth is it conveying? Uh, gratitude, hospitality, learning, um, accompanying people through difficult moments. And I kind of was trying to tease out the deeper lesson in each of the 10 teachings. And that's 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 where the journey began. It all began in a simple worship service on a Saturday morning, listening to a 13 year old girl sing this this prayer. Wow. And I and I saw something on YouTube after reading the book that was a video of a woman singing it. It really is beautiful when it's sung in Hebrew and the melody and the music. Yeah, I mean, it goes, I, I'm not a good singer, but it's. And then goes through. So I'm not, I don't have the best voice, but that's, this is that traditional uh, Hebrew chanting style. Wow. Can you uh, give the English contemporary version of that? And then I'd like to just kind of walk through the different elements because uh, I love what you said about taking each of these lines or ideas that's in the prayer and you just expanded on it and looked for the deeper meaning. And it, it really felt like listening to 10 really substantive sermons about each of these topics. But um, if you can say it for our listeners in advance, that'd be great. Absolutely. So it says, these are the duties, these are the teachings, these are the responsibilities whose worth cannot be measured. Their award awaits us in this lifetime and in our lives in the world to come. Uh, and here they are, uh, honoring father and mother, acts of love and kindness, diligent pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, hospitality to wayfarers, visiting the sick, rejoicing with bride and groom, consoling the bereaved, praying with sincerity, making peace between human beings and continuing the study of Torah because study is the foundation that leads to them all. Those are the 10. Thank you for that. It sounds uh, uh, amazingly contemporary. <laughs> Those words would have been written in uh, what? Uh, 300 BCE. Yeah. 2000 years ago, probably. I mean, somewhere, somewhere, maybe 100, 200 BCE, some, some, or not BCE, uh, CE. So after the life of Jesus, during the common era, uh, but, but around that time. And may, it may even be earlier. I mean, it's so hard to tell because nothing was written down really until the fifth century. Um, but they certainly probably originated sometime closer to 100 CE. Yeah. 
So you start the book with a little bit of setup that you've talked about, but I thought it was interesting as a psychotherapist uh, that the first one is to honor your father and mother. And I think there's even something I saw online about a contemporary version of this um, that might be the one you recited, but that it was uh, adjusted in the wording because so many people are dealing with uh, abuse or parental issues that that there's something about this that felt almost traumatizing. So talk to me about uh, the deeper meaning of honoring father and mother. That doesn't mean that you just say everything is okay when they try to control you or manipulate you or that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, you know, that is the chapter that has probably been the most impactful to people. I had a group of pre-readers, people who were promoting the book but and who read it ahead of time. And almost to a T, they said that chapter was the most powerful for them, which I didn't expect going into it. But I translated honor father, mother. I translated it to honor those who gave you life. Mm. Uh, and uh, so that was my just to 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 because I think that gets at the deeper meaning of the text. And to me, what it means, well, first of all, in terms of abuse, Jewish law is very clear. If your parents abused you, they no longer warrant the honor. So abuse is in its own kind of category of that that sort of uh, uh, changes the application of the law. But let's just talk about not not necessarily abuse, but maybe people weren't the best parents or they were absent, things like that. The idea in Judaism is that you owe that life is a gift. And the people who gave you life, they gave you that gift. And you owe some amount of honor to the people who gave you that gift, even if they didn't really follow through after giving you the gift to begin with. So To me, it's about gratitude. It's about seeing life as a gift. And gratitude, if if someone forced me, you know, there's a great uh, Hebrew teaching that says, summarize all of the Torah to me while standing on one foot. And to me, if somebody said, summarize what you need to do to be happy while standing on one foot, I would say gratitude. Gratitude, because when we are grateful for what we have, we focus on it. We don't focus always on what we want. We focus on what we have. And when we're grateful for what we have, we're happier. It's, 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 it, it simply changes the, the mind in a way. So if we look at our parents and say, you know what? Thank you for the gift of life. That to me, is, it, it can be life changing. And I talk in, in this chapter uh, uh, about a funeral I had to conduct, it's a very difficult funeral where the mother essentially – did not have any contact with her children from after when from the time they were four and six until her death when they were in their 30s. And the reason was she uh, had become a heroin addict and was gone, just you know, lived on the streets for 20 years and then in a shelter for 10 years. And they had no contact with her. Uh, and then she died and they actually spoke at her funeral. And it was... I mean, it was very powerful. And essentially what they said was they were grateful that she gave them life and that this kind of expressing that gratitude, I talked to them a week later, and expressing that gratitude gave them a sense of closure and also of self-understanding. They understood by, by, by kind of experiencing that moment, experiencing the pain, but also 
finding some sort of blessing in it, it gave them a sense of peace. And we're not always able to do that. But when we can find a way to express gratitude, then I think we're happier. Hi, this is Michael, and thanks for listening to this episode. And if you're a regular listener, I want to thank you for supporting the podcast by downloading and listening and for spreading the word. Uh, At this point, in December of 2018, we are uh, fast approaching 150,000 downloads, and we are in over 30 countries around the world. And so if this podcast has been helpful to you, both on your personal journey uh, of healing and wholeness or spiritual formation, or if it's been helpful to you as a professional, whether you're a pastor, caregiver, writer, author, or just friend of the soul, I would like to invite you to consider how you might support our tiny little podcast here financially. Um, It's that time of year when our nonprofit and so many others are looking to uh, create an opportunity for the year ahead. And so it's usually in late November and December that we do the bulk of our fundraising. And this podcast costs somewhere between $600 and $700 per month to produce and to actually get on a web page where you can listen to it or download it through one of the podcast formats. So would you take a moment and just reflect on perhaps your favorite episode or favorite moment on this podcast and how it's touched you? And is that something that you'd want to fund? No hard pressure sales here. Not going to compare listening to this podcast versus a venti latte or anything like National Public Radio does. But you can simply go to restoringthesoul.com, click on the word donate in the upper right-hand corner, and you can make a gift of any amount. $5 is not too little. $10 is not too little. Some can write a check for $5 or $10 or $20 or $100, and others could write a check uh, or do a credit card payment for much, much more. And so thanks in advance for any gift that you are able to make. And thanks again for being a listener. It is a joy to do this work and to to share these conversations with you. And wishing you and all of your loved ones a great year ahead in 2019. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com 